choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode number 336 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Introduction, Crew Selection, and Command Module Pilot, Al Worden. In the year 1768, Captain James Cook ventured to the unknown reaches of the South Pacific on the first true scientific expedition aboard the ship he christened Endeavour. After the mercantile journeys of Columbus, Drake, and other pathfinders, Cook had a different mission, the quest for knowledge. Though his attempt to witness a rare transit of Venus early in the journey was foiled by Hayes, Cook went on to map the unexplored lands of Australia and New Zealand. He returned to England in 1771, exactly 200 years before Apollo 15 left Earth. Astronaut Dave Scott often thought of the similarities and differences between Cook's mission and his own in Apollo 15. In two centuries, the scope of exploration had changed dramatically, as well as the role of the explorer. In fact, Cook had played a part in everything from commissioning the boat to finding a crew to charting a course. For Cook, it was about a three-year voyage of discovery in the South Pacific with his 70-man crew aboard his ship, the Endeavour. And as a tribute to Cook, the crew of Apollo 15 named their command module Endeavour. They also arranged, courtesy of the Marine Museum at Newport, Rhode Island, to carry with them a small block of wood taken from the stern post of Cook's ship. But unlike Cook's expedition, getting to the moon required the combined efforts of hundreds of thousands of people for better than a decade. Cook and his crew were completely on their own from the time they left until they returned. The isolation they must have felt would be echoed in some ways by the physical isolation of the crew of Apollo 15 when they were a quarter of a million miles from home on the surface of the moon. But at least the crew of Apollo 15 could talk to mission control almost every step of the way. On March 26, 1970, NASA announced the all-Air Force crew of Apollo 15. They were Commander Colonel David Scott, 
Lunar Module Pilot Lieutenant James Irwin and Command Module Pilot Major Alfred Worden. To understand how this crew was selected, we must think back to Apollo 9. Although there were exceptions, in general crew assignments were based on a three-mission rotation. The Apollo 9 crew of Jim McDivitt, Dave Scott, and Rusty Swigert would normally rotate to the Apollo 12 backup crew and then to the Apollo 15 prime crew. However, Jim McDivitt had chosen to go into NASA management, so he was eliminated from consideration for the Apollo 12 backup. And Rusty Swigert was ruled out due to his space sickness episode on Apollo 9. The only remaining Apollo 9 crew member was Dave Scott. Scott was deemed to have performed his duties well on Gemini 8 and Apollo 9. And Director of Flight Crew Operations Deke Slayton considered Scott as a potential crew commander. Al Worden and Jim Irwin worked on the support crews for Apollo 9 and 10, respectively. So, on April 10, 1969, Scott was named backup commander of Apollo 12, with Al Worden as command module pilot and James Irwin as lunar module pilot. Through normal crew rotation, the backups for Apollo 12 became the prime crew for Apollo 15. For his part, Dave Scott was proud of his crew. He wrote in his book, Two Sides of the Moon, quote, Jim, Al, and I were to be the first all-Air Force Apollo crew, hence the naming of the lunar module after the official mascot of the United States Air Force Academy, Falcon. I could not have wished for a better crew. As backup crew to Apollo 12, we were already a close team. There is no one I would rather have spent time on the moon with than Jim Irwin. He was a very bright guy, quiet but constantly aware. He always had a pleasant demeanor, came up with good suggestions, and was very easy to work with. Al was a perfect match for the two of us. He was pretty independent. He had to be. He had to work through all the procedures and science he would conduct alone in the command module independently of Jim and me, end quote. With the crew selected, let's consider the mission objectives of Apollo 15. The first voice you will hear will be Dave Scott, then Irwin and Warden. The primary mission objective of Apollo 15 is to land at a site on the moon called the Hadley Rill and uh, collect documented samples from various geological features uh, within the area of the landing site. Uh, we might also add that a primary objective is to uh, remain in lunar orbit for six days with the command and service modules gathering scientific data around the moon with the scientific instrument module in the command and service module. 40-year-old Dave Scott, the man in charge on Apollo 15. This will be Scott's third space flight. He flew previously on Gemini 8 and Apollo 9. Well, of course, I'm uh, probably the oldest rookie in, in the program, but uh, looking forward very eagerly to, to this trip. 
because I think it's going to be uh, certainly one of the, the greatest missions to date and certainly one of the most complicated. Sharing the workload on the moon's surface, Lunar Module Pilot Jim Irwin, 41. The experiments that we're carrying are basically geochemical experiments. And with these experiments, we hope to be able to map the surface of the moon, correlating that with the rocks that we get from the surface of uh, Hadley Rill and with some of the rocks that we've had uh, on previous flights. The 12-day Apollo 15 mission was scheduled for launch on July 26, 1971. It was the fourth United States human exploration of the moon. As compared with earlier missions, Apollo 15 would double the time and extend by a factor of 10 the range of lunar surface exploration. Apollo 15 would deploy the third in a network of automatic scientific stations, the ALSEPs. Additionally, Apollo 15 would conduct a new group of experiments in lunar orbit and return to Earth a variety of lunar rocks and samples. Scientists expected the results would greatly increase man's knowledge both of the moon's history and composition and of the evolution and dynamic interaction of the Sun-Earth system. This was because the dry airless moon still bore records of solar radiation and the early years of the solar system history that had been erased from Earth. It was hoped observations of current lunar events also might increase understanding of similar processes on Earth, such as earthquakes. The Apollo 15 lunar module would make its descent over the Apennine Peaks, one of the highest mountain ranges on the moon, to land near the rim of the canyon-like Hadley Reel. Here's Dave Scott. Uh, the landing site for Apollo 15 at the Hadley Rill is a very dramatic site. Uh, we feel it will be quite spectacular when you get to see it on television while we're there. It's uh, essentially on a flat plain surrounded by uh, mountains on one side and a rill or a, a meandering gorge, we might call it, on the earth on the other side. The, uh, the mountains to our east and north and south range anywhere from 11,000 to 15,000 feet high and the rill or the gorge in front of us is like a canyon and it's about uh, oh, 1.3 kilometers across and 1,000 feet deep so it's it has some very significant uh, terrain features and uh, something I'm sure that everybody will be impressed with at least from the uh, standpoint of visual observation when we get back. From this Hadley-Apennine lunar base between the mountain range and the reel, Commander Scott and Lunar Module Pilot Irwin will explore several kilometers from the lunar module driving an electric-powered lunar roving vehicle for the first time on the moon. Here's Scott and Irwin describing the rover. Well, the rover weighs about 500 Earth pounds which is uh, slightly more than 80 pounds on the moon. So you can see it's a, a rather light vehicle on the moon. As a matter of fact, if we had to change a tire, one of us could hold it up. Although with the wire wheels, it won't be necessary. Uh, the rover is folded. Uh, its wheels fold in flat to the body and the body folds up in two pieces. And it's stowed in uh, bay one on the left side of the front of the limb. Now, as far as the uh 
the drive on the rover itself, the control for it is all built into this, this one stick right here. It has the brake. The brake is the, the rearward position of this stick. Brakes release now. To go forward, you merely push the, the stick or the throttle control forward. And it maintains that position, should maintain that speed depending on the terrain. To go uh, backwards, you release the reverse inhibit and just rotate the stick aft. And then to turn, you just move the stick to the left or right like a roll input in an aircraft. And that will turn the, the wheels and you'll move in that direction. The uh, instrumentation for the vehicle is all presented on this one panel in terms of uh, amp hours, voltages, then temperatures on the batteries and on the drive motors. We also have a display here for our navigation system, which is, uh, will be most helpful on our extended uh, traverses from the, from the LEM, because on, the, uh, on EVA2, we'll be moving away as much as uh, almost eight kilometers from the, the lunar module. Traveling at speeds of five miles per hour or more, Scott and Irwin will be able to explore roughly 25 miles of the lunar surface as a result of their added mobility. There'll be television, too. The television has been developed to be carried on the rover and controlled remotely from the ground. So every time we make a science stop, we enable uh, the television within the communication systems on the rover, and the ground will be able to point the TV in any direction within 360 degrees, uh, elevate it and depress it, and also zoom it. So uh, you'll perhaps have a better view of many things than we will, because you'll be able to watch both of us at the same time. The plan was for Scott and Irwin to leave the lunar module for three exploration periods, to place scientific experiments on the lunar surface, and to make detailed geologic investigations of formations in the Apennine foothills along the Hadley Rim and to other geologic structures. The Apollo 15 mission would greatly increase the scientific return when compared to earlier exploration missions of Apollo 11, 12, and 14. Extensive geological sampling and survey of the Hadley-Apennine region of the Moon would be enhanced by the use of the lunar rover and by the improved life support system of the lunar module and astronaut space suit. Additionally, the load-carrying capability of the lunar module was increased to permit landing a greater payload on the lunar surface. During the astronauts' first period of EVA on the lunar surface, Scott and Irwin would drive the lunar roving vehicle to explore the Apennine front. After returning to the lunar module, they would set up the Apollo Lunar Surface Experiment Package, about 300 feet west of the lunar module. Experiments in the Apollo 15 ALSEP were passive seismic experiment for continuous measurement of moonquakes and meteorite impacts, lunar surface magnetometer for measuring the magnetic field of the lunar surface, solar wind spectrometer measuring the energy and flux of solar protons and electrons reaching the moon, suprathermal ion detector for measuring density of solar wind high and low energy ions, 
cold cathode ion gauge for measuring variations in the thin lunar atmosphere, and the heat flow experiment to measure heat emanating from beneath the lunar surface. Scott and Irwin would use, for the first time, a precussive drill for drilling holes in the moon's crust for placement of the heat flow experiment sensors and for obtaining samples of the lunar crust. Additionally, two experiments independent of the ALCEP would be set up near the lunar module. They were the Solar Wind Composition Experiment for determining the isotopic makeup of noble gases in the solar wind, and the Laser Range Retro Reflector Experiment, which acted as a passive target for Earth-based lasers in measuring Earth-Moon distances over a long period of time. The Solar Wind Composition Experiment had been flown on all previous missions, and the Laser Reflector Experiment was flown on Apollos 11 and 14. The Apollo 15 reflector would have three times more reflective area than the two previous reflectors. The second EVA would be spent in a lengthy geology traverse in which Scott and Irwin would collect documented samples and make geology investigations and photo panoramas at a series of stops along the Apennine front. The third EVA would be a geological expedition along the Hadley Reel and northward from the lunar module. At each stop in the traverse, the crew would re-aim a high-gain antenna on the lunar roving vehicle to permit a television picture of their activities to be beamed to Earth. A suitcase-sized device called the Lunar Communications Relay for the first time would allow the crew to explore beyond the lunar horizon from the lunar module and still remain in contact with Earth. The communications unit would relay two-way voice, biomedical telemetry, and television signals from the lunar surface to the Earth. Additionally, the unit would permit Earth control of the television cameras during the lunar exploration. Here's Irwin and Scott describing the EVAs. During their 67-hour stay on the moon, Scott and Irwin will move out of the lunar module and onto the moon's surface for three major work periods of extravehicular activity called EVA. It is during this time that they will explore and set up scientific experiments. On EVA-1, for instance, uh, we'll be going down to the front first, doing our geology investigation down there along the Apennine front and then over to the rail. And then coming back to the, uh, the LEM, we'll be uh, unstowing the ALSEP packages and then uh, deploying the ALSEP about three to 500 feet west of the LEM. I'll be doing the, uh, the bulk of the deployment while Dave is doing the drilling operation. Well, the lunar drill is part of what we call a heat flow experiment. First, uh, we're able to drill a hole deep into the lunar surface and implant temperature sensors, which enable us to measure the profile of heating, if you will, from depth below the surface to the surface. Uh, this will uh, give scientists a, a signature of what the surface consists of and how it's heat flux changes. Uh, they can extrapolate this into possibly an explanation of the origin and the history of the interior of the moon. Uh, the second aspect of the drill is a core or a deep uh, penetration of the surface and gathering of material 
some nine feet below the surface in a, uh, an extended core which is uh, brought out intact, showing the profile of the surface uh, to depth. On Apollo 15, significant scientific data on the Earth-Sun-Moon system and on the moon itself was planned to be gathered by a series of lunar orbital experiments carried on board the Apollo Command Service Modules. Most of the orbital science tasks would be accomplished by Command Module Pilot Al Worden while his comrades were on the lunar surface. New to Apollo 15, scientific equipment would be loaded into the Service Module Scientific Instrument Module Bay. The new equipment includes a gamma-ray spectrometer and X-ray fluorescence which measures lunar surface chemical composition along the orbital ground track, an alpha particle spectrometer which measures alpha particles from radioactive decay of radon gas isotopes emitted from the lunar surface, a mass spectrometer which measures the composition and distribution of the lunar atmosphere, and a sub-satellite carrying three experiments would be injected into the lunar orbit for relaying scientific information to Earth on the Earth's magnetosphere and its interaction with the moon, the solar wind, and the lunar gravity field. The scientific instrument module bay would also contain equipment for orbital photography, including a 24-inch panoramic camera, a 3-inch mapping camera, and a laser altimeter for accurately measuring spacecraft altitude for correlation with the mapping photos. Here's Al Warden. The subsatellite is what I would term uh, a passive experiment. And when I mean, when I say passive, I mean in the sense that it's not powered in flight. We eject a subsatellite from the command service module. It goes into an orbit which is then only perturbed by the gravitational attraction of the moon. The subsatellite is a particles and fields satellite. It, uh, the, the, the main effort in this particular satellite is to measure uh, the, the, the particles field around the moon. Uh, such as the plasma flow, uh, solar rays, uh, magnetic field, magnetic particles, and this type of thing around the moon. Because of the way the satellite is built, and because of the way the data is transmitted back to Earth, we get a very nice byproduct from the satellite, and that is that we can uh, track the subsatellite with radar, uh, with radio signals from the Earth, and we can position it precisely in its orbit about the moon, and we can watch the perturbations of the orbit of the subsatellite, uh, eventually arriving at a very good model of the gravitational field of the moon. There's been a lot of talk about uh, heavy spots on the moon, the so-called mass cons. Because the subsatellite is completely unpowered, uh, it's, it's completely at the mercy of this gravitational field, and any heavy mass con that it sees perturbs its orbit, and we can calculate this. We can measure it and then calculate that gravitational field. It was planned for Warden to perform an in-flight EVA to retrieve the exposed film from the scientific instrument module bay. Here's Warden explaining the procedure. Once the hatch is opened, uh, we'll take the TV camera and the 16-millimeter 
uh, data acquisition camera, mount that on the hatch, the command module hatch, with both cameras pointed toward the service module where I'll be working. Once that's accomplished, then I'll go very slowly down the handrails to the service module, staying away from the reaction control system engines or uh, quads, which are just off the side of the path of the EVA, go down to the service module, uh, get uh, situated in the EVA restraint boots, which are located on one side of the service module. And once in that position, then I'll remove the thermal and contamination covers from the, mat from the pan camera cassette first. Once they're removed, I'll pull the cassette out of its bay, tether it to, my, to, the, to the left wrist, and then very slowly uh, come back the handrails, back to the command module, um, stow the cassette inside the command module, where Dave Scott will uh, keep track of it and hold it until the end of the EVA. Then I'll go back down the handrails and essentially repeat that process with, uh, with the mapping camera cassette, tethering it to my left wrist and bringing it back into the command module. The launch of Apollo 15 was scheduled for 9.34 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time, July 26, 1971, from NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida. The lunar module would land on the moon on Friday, July 30th, it would remain on the surface for about 67 hours. Splashdown in the North Central Pacific, north of Hawaii, was scheduled for August 7th. The prime recovery ship for Apollo 15 would be the helicopter landing platform USS Okinawa. The Apollo 15 backup crew were U.S. Navy Captain Richard Gordon Jr. as commander, Mr. Vance Brand, the command module pilot, and Dr. Harrison H. Smith, lunar module pilot. Now, here are Irwin first, then Warden and Scott, summarizing their feelings on space exploration and the Apollo 15 mission. Well, I think it's always uh, important for, for man to have a new challenge maybe a physical challenge, but certainly a challenge to his imagination. And I think that uh, the fact that we're going to the, the moon is just another step forward. I think we have, to, we have to go to the moon, we have to explore it, and learn, really learn how to explore another planet. The space program is, is one of those things that uh, this country has, uh, which is really could be, and probably is for a great number of people in the country, a driving force. It's expanded technology immeasurably. Computer industry, uh, hardware industry, equipment, anything you want to mention, even management, has benefited tremendously from the space program. And I think that uh, we, we really need to keep this kind of technology going if we're going to be leaders in the world. We feel if we can learn the history of the moon, we can extrapolate it to the history of the Earth and perhaps, uh, with this knowledge, discover the manner in which our resources were created and, and uh, the manner in which we can discover new resources and preserve what we have. The overall result being uh, a continuation of, of uh, what we have on the Earth and enabling us to better understand our own planet 
and the manner in which we have to preserve it in order to uh, sustain man. Now let's move on to the Apollo 15 crew biographies. First, we have Command Module Pilot Al Worden. Hello, I'm Al Worden. I was Apollo 15 Command Module Pilot. Flew on a Saturn V out of the Cape here on July 26, 1971. It was a lunar flight and it was unusual because we carried the very first lunar rover on our flight. Alfred Merrill Warden was born February 7, 1932 in Jackson, Michigan. He was the second of six children and the oldest of the four boys. He was the son of Merrill and Helen Warden. Al lived on his family's farm outside the city of Jackson. Though the family stayed part of the time at his maternal grandparents' farm near East Jordan, Warden attended Dibble, Griswold, Broomfield, and East Jackson grade schools, and he graduated from Jackson High School, where he was student council president. Like so many other astronauts, Warden was a Boy Scout and earned the rank of first class. His family was poor, so Warden sought a scholarship to continue his studies after high school. He was able to secure a one-year scholarship to the University of Michigan. But Al decided that the United States Service Academies were his best opportunity to obtain an education. Warden took an entrance exam and was offered appointments both to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, New York, and the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland. He selected West Point and began his studies there in July 1951. Worden enjoyed the demanding life at West Point. In addition to his studies, he participated in cross-country running, gymnastics, and cheerleading. He received a Bachelor of Science degree in military science from West Point in 1955. And in June of 1955, Al married his first wife, Pamela Vanderbeek, whom he met on a blind date while he was a cadet. I primarily grew up on a farm, and then I transitioned going to college, doing some other things, and became a pilot in the Air Force, and then I became an astronaut, and I went to the moon. Kind of a big change in somebody's life, but I will tell you, that change made me realize that the Earth is getting smaller and smaller. At the time Warden graduated from West Point, he had no piloting experience. The United States Air Force Academy was not yet graduating cadets and would not until 1959. Graduates of West Point and Annapolis were permitted to choose to be commissioned in the Air Force, and some of Warden's instructors urged Al to do this. So he did. He chose the Air Force, thinking promotion would be faster something he subsequently learned was not the case. Warden received primary flight training at Moore Air Force Base, Texas, where he learned to fly on T-34s and came to love piloting. He advanced for training at Laredo Air Force Base, Texas, on the Lockheed T-33 jet aircraft, and after eight months went on to Tyndall Air Force Base, Florida, for Air Defense Command training. 
His first post-training assignment was with the 95th Fighter Interceptor Squad at Andrews Air Force Base near Washington, D.C. There, he served as a pilot and armaments officer from March 1957 until May 1961. Seeking both to advance his career and benefit the Air Force, in 1961, Warden requested to be sent to study aerospace engineering at the University of Michigan. His request was granted, and he earned Master of Science degrees in Astronautical, Aeronautical Engineering, and Instrumentation Engineering from the University of Michigan in 1963. After graduation, Warden applied for U.S. Air Force Test Pilot School, but to his surprise, he was not selected. He learned that his superiors wanted him to be part of an exchange program with Britain's Royal Air Force and to train at the Empire Test Pilot School in Farnborough, England. Since that course would not begin for six months, Warden spent the time at the Randolph Air Force Base Instrument Pilots Instructor School. After successfully completing the course at Farnborough, Warden served as an instructor at the Aerospace Research Pilot School, for which he graduated in September 1965. Then, in April of 1966, Warden was selected as one of NASA's Astronaut Group 5, also known as the Original 19. Al first served as a member of the astronaut support crew for the Apollo 19 flight and as a backup command module pilot for the Apollo 12 flight. Sadly, Warden's first marriage ended in divorce in December of 1969, just before Al was selected to fly on Apollo 15. Though divorce was controversial for astronauts at the time, Warden was still assigned as command module pilot for Apollo 15, which flew from July 26 to August 7, 1971. Of course, his companions on the flight were David Scott, spacecraft commander, and James Irwin, lunar module pilot. Apollo 15 was the fourth crewed lunar landing mission and the first to visit and explore the moon's Hadley Real and Apennine Mountains, which were located on the southeast edge of the Sea of Rains. Al Warden was responsible for at least one of Apollo 15's major achievements, the first deep-spaced EVA from a command module during Trans-Earth Coast. Warden logged 38 minutes in extravehicular activity outside the command module Endeavour. In completing his three trips to Endeavour's scientific instrument module Bay, Warden retrieved film cassettes from the panoramic and mapping cameras and reported his personal observations of the general condition of the equipment housed there. When I did the, the extravehicular activity uh, this side of the moon, we were about 50,000 miles this side of the moon, and I had to go outside to recover some film canisters that it, it, we had used during the lunar orbital part of the flight. And then I went back out a third time, put my feet in some foot restraints, and just looked around. Uh, I was standing up outside the spacecraft um, and I could look to my left and see the moon and look to my right and see the earth and it was kind of an unbelievable sight. You know, you step back and you look at the earth and you say, hmm, that's a pretty small object out there. It's uh, not much bigger from the moon than the moon is from here. 
Additionally, Warden was listed in the Guinness World Records as the most isolated human being during his time alone in the command module Endeavor. He orbited the moon 74 times. When the orbiting command module was at its greatest distance from Scott and Irwin in the Falcon, Warden was 2,235 miles away from any other human beings. Warden said he enjoyed his three wonderful days in the spacecraft all by himself, including being out of contact with Earth while on the far side of the moon because he was used to being alone as a fighter pilot. When I was in orbit around the moon by myself, and, the, and David and Jim were down on the surface, uh, I never really gave much of a thought to, you know, what happens if I can't get back to Earth. That issue was resolved pretty much before we made the flight. I have to say that I became a believer in kind of a Far Eastern thought process which says there's something more important than you as a person. There are other things, there are bigger things more important than you. And we kind of made our minds up before the flight that whatever happens, uh, we're comfortable with it. We wanted to make the flight badly enough. Uh, and it was such a great scientific uh, expedition that we felt that uh, even if we didn't survive it, um, we, we had really done our best. In total, Al Warden logged 295 hours and 11 minutes in space. After Al returned from the moon, he received the NASA Distinguished Service Medal and an Honorary Doctor of Science degree in Astronautical Engineering from the University of Michigan. From 1972 to 1973, Warden served as the Senior Aerospace Scientist at the NASA Ames Research Center. And from 73 to 75, he was chief of the Systems Study Division at Ames. In 1974, Warden wrote two books, including Hello Earth, Greetings from Endeavor, and the children's book, I Want to Know About a Flight to the Moon. Also between 1972 and 1975, he made seven guest appearances on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. In 1975, Worden retired from NASA and active duty in the Air Force. He then became president of Maris Worden Aerospace and later staff vice president of Goodrich Aerospace in Brexville, Ohio. From 1975 until 2011, Worden served as chairman of the Astronauts Scholarship Foundation, which provided scholarships to exceptional science and engineering students. In 1982, Warden ran for the United States House of Representatives in Florida's 12th Congressional District, but he lost the Republican primary to state Senator Tom Lewis. Despite the loss, Warden referred to his run as the high point of his life, saying, I thought that was a very important thing to do, I put everything into it and lost, but that's okay. Warden was inducted into the International Space Hall of Fame in 1983. He was inducted into the United States Astronaut Hall of Fame in 1997. And in 2009, Warden was honored with a NASA Ambassador of Exploration Award. 
In 2011, Worden's memoir, Falling to Earth, an Apollo 15's astronaut journey to the moon, made the top 12 of the Los Angeles Times bestseller list. In 2016, Worden was inducted into the International Air and Space Hall of Fame at the San Diego Air and Space Museum. In 2017, Worden was a contributor and wrote the foreword for the award-winning book, A Quarter Million Steps, by Dr. Anthony Paulston. The book explores leadership using perspectives from the Apollo program. In 2018, Worden joined the Back to Space organization as an astronaut consultant with the goal of inspiring the next generation to go to Mars through film. What I like to see is us going to Mars in the next 20, 25 years. Uh, I think the reality is that it's going to be 50 years, maybe 60 years. As we get away from it and we look back, we begin to realize that the Earth is really finite. Uh, the day will come when the Earth, can, we can no longer reside here. And in my mind, that's what the space program ultimately is all about. Giving us an escape valve for when we can't live here anymore so we can go somewhere else. And finally, a quick word on Al's personal life. He was married three times. After he divorced his first wife, he married Sandra Lee Wilder. Sadly, that marriage also ended in divorce. His third wife was Jill Lee Hotchkiss, and she passed away in 2014. Al had four children, two daughters from his first marriage, Merrill and Allison, he had a stepdaughter from his second marriage named Stephanie and a daughter from his third marriage named Tamara. Worden's recreational interest included bowling, water skiing, golf, and racquetball. Sadly, Al Warden passed away of a stroke very recently on March 18, 2020 at an assisted living center in Sugar Land, Texas. He was 88 years old. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 336 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 15, Introduction, Crew Selection, and Command Module Pilot, Al Worden. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks, and that will be April 23rd. If you are new to the podcast, what we're trying to accomplish here is a timeline approach to the exploration of space. I began in ancient times and now I have reached the year 1971. Try to cover the most significant space missions of each year, which includes manned and unmanned missions from all the countries in the world. Now up to this point, that's been mainly the United States and the Soviet Union, but we will cover other countries as well. Something else to be aware of, if you're listening on the main feed of the podcast, you will not see all the episodes. 
I have the first 164 episodes available on the Archive podcast. To find it, search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like a better copy of those archive episodes as they were originally released with all the original afterthoughts, they are available for download on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode. I am excited to have reached Apollo 15, the first of the J-type missions. These last three missions, Apollo 15 through 17, were intended for extensive scientific investigation of the moon on the surface and from orbit. This was really a great flight, and it had the most science yet. And it has the exciting lunar rover, which will greatly expand the distance the astronauts can travel from the lunar module. You know, I can remember seeing that rover on TV back in 1971, And for a 10-year-old boy, it was pretty cool. That was near the age of dune buggies, and that's kind of what I equated it to. Now, this mission also has Al Worden's first deep space walk. Now, that's exciting. Anyway, I'm really looking forward to this flight. Now, you may have noticed when I was doing Al Warden's biography, I left out at least one important aspect, and that was the Apollo 15 stamp cover incident. I left that out on purpose because it applies to all three men, and I didn't want to repeat it three times in each of their biographies. So I will cover it one time for all three crewmen on the next episode. Now a little off topic, and that is NASA is celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13 on April 11th. Now if you're interested in reliving that mission, I covered it, beginning on episode 258 and continuing through episode 290. It was a successful failure. And I do believe it was NASA's finest hour. So check that out. Have a little bit of personal news here, and this is good news. Uh, in case you're not interested, feel free to fast forward because this is entirely off topic. Brought in Mrs. SRH. Hello. Say, Hello, everyone. <laughs> to announce this because it's really important. Go ahead. We are so excited. <laughs> This is great news. Our youngest daughter, Jennifer, is expecting her second child. Now, we have already four grandsons, and they are fantastic. We just love them and have so much, have just a blast with them. So having four, we assumed that number five would be another grandson. So you know what? It's a girl. We're so excited. <laughs> <laughs> We are finally getting a, a granddaughter. This is our first granddaughter, so uh, it's going to be quite lively, I'm sure. We are thrilled about this and cannot wait to spoil her. Now, she is due uh, in August, so we hope everything goes well. We, and um, let's, let's hope everything goes well. 
Yes, I, I think it will. She's going to have a interesting time with her brother and three male cousins. So, <laughs> I hope that works out good for her. The only girl in that group could have it a little rough. Yeah, she'll probably rise to the occasion. Look she out. will. <laughs> she will. Uh, we're very excited about it. So, I thought we'd share a little good news here. Okay, moving on. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and you are financially able, and I do want to stress that only if you are financially able, consider supporting the podcast. Don't worry about it if you're not. It's a low priority. For the past seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions. I'd like to thank Michael S. from the UK, who donated at the Starship level and earned a satellite emoji. Thank you, Michael. Peter W. from Germany donated at the Orion level and earned a galaxy emoji. Tim R. from Georgia donated at the Apollo level and earned a rocket emoji. Karsten E. from Denmark donated at the Mercury level and earned a satellite emoji. Russell J. from Georgia donated at the Mercury level and earned a moon emoji. Andrej S. from the Czech Republic sent in another donation and moved to the Mercury level. Ben pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level and Benjamin W. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Our total Patreon donors has reached 246. We lost four over the month that changed from March to April. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 315 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now, once again, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, friends. It's time for our winner, and you know our winner gets a choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two of our new holographic stickers. Now with the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Andre Ionesco. Andre, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll mail this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all 315 of you who contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, Falling to Earth by Al Warden, Flight by Chris Kraft, Apollo 15 Press Kit, Apollo 15 Flight Journal, the website alwarden.com, and Wikipedia. And that is all we have for episode 336. I will try to have episode 337 posted by Thursday, April 23rd. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.